And I think sometimes today many people confuse Veterans Day with Memorial Day. Memorial Day is a day that we remember all of those who gave their life, who lost their life in service to our country. And Veterans Day is a day that we celebrate everyone who has served, everyone who has sacrificed to be able to serve. Matter of fact, today, during this service, will be the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I, what was known as the armistice that happened at the 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918. And so at 11 o'clock today, it'll be the 100th anniversary of the armistice. The war to end all wars came to an end, and that became Armistice Day. And then in the 1950s, that day became Veterans Day. And it is a special day, and I think even more so today, that we should take opportunity to thank our veterans and the family of our veterans who sacrificed themselves for our security and safety. So I just want to take a moment, if you are a veteran, or if you have served, or if you are serving, or if you are a family member of a veteran, would you stand for a moment? Amen. Amen. Give them a hand. Amen. God bless you, and God bless your service. And while Veterans Day is a national holiday, one thing that I seem to have noticed that over the years we have seemed to create more and more special days that are recognizing anything and everything. We have days today that are National Love Your Dog Day and National Sister Day and National Left-Handed Day and National Red Hair Day and National Left-Handed Red-Haired Sister Day. And it seems like we have every day that I open my phone, there's a different day that we're supposed to celebrate. And, And I wonder, who creates these things? Who comes up with this idea that somehow today is some special group, special day? Because it seems like every day celebrate some random group and I don't know if that comes out of that millennial everybody gets a trophy kind of mentality that we're going to celebrate there's not a day that doesn't get celebrated you say well nobody celebrates me well we'll create a day just for you so that you get celebrated and it seems to me the more we celebrate these random celebrations the more it really waters down days that we have traditionally celebrated, days that were traditionally very important days on our national calendar, days like Veterans Day or Memorial Day or President's Day or even Thanksgiving. If you think about it in your lifetime, just in the last 25 years, how much the meaning and celebration of Thanksgiving has changed. I can remember as a child that Thanksgiving was a big deal. It was a huge holiday. It was a day where you set aside for family and friends to get together to celebrate a time to give thanks to God for all that He had given you. Now there was football and there was food and there was all of the other things that different families had, their own little tradition, but it always would center around gathering at that table for a meal where somebody in the family, usually the grandfather or the oldest living person, would stand and they would give thanks for all that the family had been blessed with throughout the year. But think about how it's changed. Just in your lifetime, think about how you celebrate it has changed. Very quickly it seemed that Thanksgiving devolved into the beginning of the Christmas season. 
Uh, Black Friday came along, and then all of a sudden Thanksgiving wasn't about gathering together and, and eating and celebrating and spending time with family. It was about going over all the ads to see what you could get a deal on the next day. And I know some families that would even move their meal around because people were trying to get up early or having to get stay up late to be able to go and hit the shops before everybody else. And, and it, that was the day that you thought, okay, they're going to start playing Christmas songs, the day of Thanksgiving, and all the whole. Hallmark movies used to wait until Thanksgiving to start coming out. Now I think they come out in June or May. You start seeing them all year long. And, and over time, as stores started moving their opening day back further and further and further, and now they don't even close. And so those people that used to be able to take off to go and celebrate Thanksgiving with their family, now they have to work. And with the internet and internet shopping, Thanksgiving nowadays seems like it's just a pit stop. Because the Christmas holidays really now start after Halloween. After Halloween, the day after Halloween, the stores in our town already had their Christmas stuff up. People were putting Christmas trees up on November the 1st. I hope it's a fake tree because it's not lasting until Christmas. And so, so Thanksgiving, instead of being an event in and of itself, it's just become an also-ran. Just something that we get together and do. And I think it gets lost in the shuffle. And I wonder if our lack of understanding, all we have to be thankful for, plays a role in that. Now, I'm not talking about the words that come out of our mouth, because I think all of us would celebrate on Thanksgiving by saying, I am thankful. I'm talking about the attitude of our hearts. I want you to listen to the decree that Abraham Lincoln wrote in 1863, making Thanksgiving a national holiday for the United States of America. Remember, this is in the middle of the bloodiest year that American history had ever seen, the bloodiest year of war. More American lives were lost in 1863 than all of World War II. You just think about in the midst of that, he writes this. The year that is drawing towards its close has been filled with blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added. Others which are so extraordinary in nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever watchful providence of an almighty God. For even in the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, which has sometimes seemed to foreign states to invite and to provoke their aggression, peace among all nations has been preserved." Order has been maintained, the laws have been respected and obeyed, and harmony has prevailed everywhere except in the theater of military conflict. And while that theater has been greatly contracted by the advancing armies and navies of the Union, needful diversions of wealth and of strength from the fields of peaceful industry to the national defense have not stopped. We are still being blessed by the plow, the shuttle of the ship. The axe has enlarged the borders of our nation. The mines with iron and coal as precious metals have yielded even more abundantly than we've ever seen. Population in our nation has steadily increased, notwithstanding the waste that has been made in the battlefields. And our country, rejoicing in the consciousness of an augmented strength and vigor, is permitted to expect... Years and years of increase of freedom. For no human counsel had devised nor mortal hand worked out these great things. 
For they are the gracious gift of the Most High God, who while dealing with us in anger for our sin, hath nevertheless remembered mercy and grace. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole of the American people and nation. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday, November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who has dwelt in the heavens. And I recommend to them that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to God for His deliverance and blessing, they also with humble penance for our national disobedience Commend to his tender care all of those who have been made widows, orphans, mourners, and sufferers of this lamentable strife. We pray for God's hand to heal the wounds of this nation and to restore it as soon as may be possible with divine purposes that we may fulfill and enjoy peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. Signed this day, October the 3rd, 1863, with the seal of the United States President. It's a long way from 1863 to today, isn't it? I wonder how many of us this Thanksgiving could take time to recognize all that we have been blessed with. Maybe it's not intentional. Maybe we've just changed as a nation or as a people. Or maybe we're just missing something that they understood that we don't. I think Paul identifies something that might be convicting to many of us of our gratefulness, our thankfulness this Thanksgiving. I want you to read and listen with me as Paul writes to the church at the Philippian church, the church at Philippi, at the end of his letter, he's thanking them for all that they have provided for him. Remember, Paul's in jail. Paul is under a death sentence. He is chained to a Roman guard when he writes these words. Chapter 4, verse 10. For I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. They sent a gift. Epaphroditus, one of their people from Philippi, came and brought a gift and some food to Paul. And he's thanking them. He says, Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. But I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances For I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. And I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Did you hear what he said there? I have learned to be content in any and every circumstance or situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want, I do everything through Him who gives me strength. Now, why in the world do you think Paul would say this is a secret? Because it's something that you and I miss many times in our lives. And it's something that I believe is the foundation to learning to be content. It's the foundation of learning what it is to be thankful and to be grateful. He says this is what's missing in so many of our lives, the principle, the idea of contentment. And we talked a little bit about it. I introduced it last week, that same word in Psalms 23. That's what David was saying. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What was he saying? If God is in charge, I don't have any wants. I am content. And I think the key to what he says here is he says, I am totally, totally, completely content. 
no matter what the circumstance. Now, if your Thanksgiving is anything like my Thanksgivings usually are, contentment is not a topic we talk about around the table. Especially as everybody's looking at what they want to shop for the, the next day or the next weekend. And please hear me, I'm not condemning those of you that love to go shopping on Thanksgiving weekend. I can remember as a kid, I explained to my kids this week, one of the things that they'll never get to experience is we used to fight the moment that the Sears Christmas catalog came in the mail. I don't know if any of you remember that. They changed it to the wish book. And there were four of us in my family, and so my mom had four highlighters. And she would say, this is your highlighter. You go in and highlight what you want. And, and I promise you, from the halfway point, from the underwear section to the toys, it was all highlighted between the four of us. We would just go through and say, I want this, and I want this, and I want this, and I want this. We were never content with what we had. We always wanted more. I think probably the only time contentment ever came up at Thanksgiving in my family was after we got through eating and everyone was sitting around rubbing their stomachs and talking about being swole up and full as a tick on a hound dog, right? Is that what my aunt and uncle used to say? We were content. But what about our hearts? Our stomachs may be content, but is your heart content? Because you see, what Paul is saying is, for us to learn to be grateful, for us to learn to give thanks, it has to come from a contented heart. I told you last week the definition of contentment is a state of complete satisfaction and happiness. So let me ask you this morning, when you walked into this church, were you in a state of complete satisfaction and happiness? Were you content? I was watching television the other day, something I try not to do because I get angry nowadays because it's so negative and it's so hateful. And I heard a reporter who was describing the mood of our country and he said, there is a palatable discontentment in the United States today. As I watched that, I thought a palatable discontentment in the wealthiest country of the world. There is a noticeable, a, a recognizable discontentment among a nation who has the greatest advances in science, the greatest advances in medicine, the greatest advances in technology and health, where the average person today in this nation lives 12 years longer than they did 30 years ago. And there is a palatable discontentment. I always find it ironic when you watch TV and you've got these protesters protesting how unhappy they are and how discontented they are and they're tweeting on their iPhones as they do it. The irony of that is lost on us today. Palatable discontentment. I wonder what 40% of the world population that lives on less than a cup of rice a day and has no electricity thinks about our palatable discontentment. Now, I'm not denying that we don't have problems, but the problems we have today in America are first world problems. And there are thousands, if not millions of people around the world that would trade your problems for their problems in a heartbeat. Palatable discontentment. When we are discontented because we have to pay more to fill up our $40,000 vehicle with gas, that's not an economic problem, that's a heart problem. And as long as we live in a world where we cannot be content with what we have and what we've been given, we'll never be thankful. And if there's ever a place, church, 
there's ever a place, an island, where a discontented world could come and find people who are content and people who are totally secure and happy. It should be the church, and especially the American church. We should be the place where the world looks and says, that's what contentment is. Now, I want to look at what Paul said about being content. And the first thing that he says is he says it's something we have to learn. Why do we have to learn it? Because it's not part of your nature. Because every one of us is born with a bigger wanter than anything else. Right? Go down and watch the kids in the nursery. I want, I want, I want, I want, right? You give them all the toys that are in the room and another kid's playing with one toy and they want that one toy, right? And for many of us, it never changes. We just grow and our wants get bigger and bigger and bigger. Paul said, you have to learn to be content. It's not something that comes natural. Even when you become a Christian, it's not something that just happens. We have always wanted more. Think about the Garden of Eden. What got Adam and Eve in trouble? They had everything. They walked with God. God said, there's only one thing you can't have. And so what was their first response? We want it. And from that moment till today, we naturally have a desire for the things that we don't have. We've got to learn. We've got to train. We've got to condition ourselves to be content because it's in our nature To be discontented. It's in our nature. We fight against it. And think about who's writing this. As I told you, Paul, this isn't a 30-year-old with a second home and two or three kids and a great retirement plan. This is a guy that's chained to a Roman soldier and, and doesn't know what tomorrow is going to bring. He is under a death sentence. He doesn't have food. In those jails in Roman time, they didn't bring you water and food. Your friends had to bring you water and food. And if your friends forgot about you, you were stuck. And it was cold, and it was hot, and it was damp, and it was dusty. And here's this old 60-year-old man, not knowing if he's going to live till tomorrow, depending on everybody else to bring him food. And he says, I'm completely content. I am completely happy. How did he learn that? How could he come to a place where he said, regardless of circumstances, whether rich or poor, food or no future, or food, future or no future, I am happy. Because he learned the secret. He called it a secret, not me. He learned the secret that contentment is not based on circumstances or situations. Not based on what you have. If your contentment level, if your happiness level is based on the things that you have and your circumstances and your situation, you'll never be content. And if you're never content, you'll never be thankful. Paul writes, 1 Timothy 6, 6-7, what I read a moment ago, for godliness with contentment is great gain. Now let's be honest. Everything we face in this world tells us to be discontent. The whole advertising system of the world is based on discontentment. What do they tell you? If only you'll buy our product, you'll be happy. If only you had this item, your whole life would be perfect. I mean, we buy the most useless things. Think about some of the things you have in your house that you purchased because you thought you were watching TV or you were on the Internet and you saw an ad and you thought, I need that. 
And then you got it home and you looked at it and said, why did I buy that? Because somehow the guy on TV told you that if you had this, everything was going to be perfect. Last week I was looking up the definition of contentment for my sermon. And as I was looking up, a pop-up ad came from Amazon itself that said, looking for contentment, we have everything. I thought, that's my sermon. That's where we are. That's why Paul says it's a battle. And in that battle, there are some natural obstacles that we have to overcome. There are really three that are innate within us that we have to fight on a daily basis if we are ever going to learn to be content. And the first and the most insidious is greed. We're greedy. We're just greedy people. It's our nature. Our fallen nature to want and to want and to want. To want what we don't have, to want what what we think we need, to want what everyone else is getting. Greed is the root cause of the national debt problem. Greed is the root cause of the personal debt problem. And the, the problem for many of us is we're never satisfied because we feel like we always need more, we want more, and we deserve more. Do you understand that the Bible, and especially the New Testament, gives more warnings about greed than any other sin? Because greed is at the root of almost every other sin. Greed is at the root of almost everything else that we fall out of our relationship to God for. It's that desire within us to have. That's why the the commercial industry is such a rich industry. Ads on the internet are, are so incredibly invasive nowadays. Nowadays, they can look at something that you've searched for, and then that's all the ads that you're going to see with a desire to tell you this is what you need, this is what you need, this is what you need. Hebrews 13, 5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of stuff. Keep your lives free from the love of stuff and be content with what you have because God has said to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know what that says? The moment you start to love stuff is the moment you stop trusting God. Because God said, I'll never leave you, I'll forsake you, and I am enough. Greed says, God's not enough. You've got to have the newest clothes and the newest car and the newest house, and the newest things. And right behind greed is envy. If greed is wanting what you don't have, envy is wanting what other people have. And that's a huge problem today. None of us would couch that. I don't think anyone that's in this room, I mean, let's just be honest. Nobody would stand up and go, amen, pastor, i got a greed problem, right? And if you do admit that, no one would stand up and say, okay, i, I got an envy problem. But we do it all the time. Somebody else gets something. We say, man, I wish I would have got that. Man, I wish I had that. Man, and it happens in every area of our life. It's not just stuff. It's in relationships. You ever look at other people and their friendships and think, man, I wish I had friends like that. Husbands, wives, you ever come home to your spouse and say, man, I wish you were like so-and-so. Y'all probably never done that. That's only me and my wife that do that, right? It's envy. And the moment we start wanting what other people have, we stop being content with what we've got. 
And when we are looking so much at what everybody else has, thinking that if we just had that, we'd be happy, then we stop realizing all that we got. The old saying, the grass isn't greener on the other side. The problem is you're just not watering your own grass. That's the truth of life. We're always looking around and and thinking that I've got to have this to be happy. It's part of our human nature. We, and we, then we get competitive, don't we? I mean, that's, that's why class warfare is such a huge issue in our country today. Because we pit one another. You, need, you deserve what they've got. You deserve what they've got. You need to get everything you can like they... And then we get competitive. Go on, on any social media site. Somebody has a birthday, and so your kid's birthday's got to be bigger than that kid's birthday. And let me just say this, this is an old man rant. This is one of those things, get off my grass. When did everything become a celebration? I'm serious. When did everything have to be a social media event? My niece just got married. They had 60 people there, and or not married, engaged. 60 people there hiding with a photographer for the engagement. Who, who decided that? Is that just part of the social media environment we live in where everybody thinks you have to... I mean, you're not hiding. They had props set up. Nobody's surprised. I remember calling my dad. I asked him to marry us in the drive-thru of a McDonald's. Nobody was in the back seat. We didn't have a photographer pop out. We've lasted 30 years. It's been okay. But you got to have retirement now. Birth announcements are not just announcements, birth reveals, right? They're parties. Everybody come. We're going to take pictures. And they did a cooler birth reveal. We got to find something even cooler. Now we spend money and spend money. Why? Because we're in a competitive world where we can't let somebody outdo us. And it starts when you're little. You don't believe me? You go to dinner after, after this, or you go somewhere after this. You, if you have kids, You get a piece of cake for your kids and you cut a big piece and a little piece and you give one of your kids the little piece and see how happy they'll be with that. How come he gets the big piece? Right? I mean, I get mad when they bring, when Kim and I order the same thing and they bring her a bigger steak. I'm like, what is this? I mean, I'm just being real. We have an envy problem. And as long as we get in this competitive nature where we think that if we could do what they're doing, then somehow we would be happier. Or if your husband acted like her husband, then your marriage would be better. Or if you could do more than everybody else, then somehow you would be happy. That's not where happiness comes from. Envy, greed, and the third barrier that we've got to overcome is lack of faith. Because really at its nature, our lack of contentment comes from saying, God, I don't trust you to provide. God, I know I sing about it. God, I know I talk about you're going to provide for all my needs. God, you're my shepherd I shall not want. But then we think we've got to help God along. We just don't trust Him. Paul writes in Philippians 4 later, he says, My God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ. The problem is we confuse our needs with our wants. God doesn't say, I'll provide all your wants. He says, I'll provide all your needs. I think every one of us in this room has a heart's desire for contentment. The problem is we're looking for it in the wrong places. The problem is is that in our search, we've built up barriers that in their 
very nature are keeping us from being content. As we search for this happiness, this contentment, this perfection, we've created greed and envy and lack of faith. And instead of bringing contentment, all of those things do is create a bigger hunger. Because it's never enough. If you're always competing and always wanting what everybody else has, when you get what they have, then you're going to want what they have. And if greed is telling you that you'll be happy if you'll just get this or just have that clothes or that car or that amount of money in the bank, once you get there, you'll realize that doesn't bring contentment because it was never created to bring contentment. So how did Paul learn this secret? Let me just close with giving you a couple of clues. First of all, he said, walk in humility. Earlier in this passage, he says, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility consider others better than yourself. The greatest way to defeat greed and envy in your life is to learn to put others and their needs ahead of your needs. And I mean, that's, that's Christianity 101. Putting others before yourself. Because you know what happens when we start trying to put the needs of others above ourselves? We start looking at them with appreciation instead of envy. When we start putting others' needs and wanting them to be happy more than we're happy, you know what happens? We stop worrying about what they have and what they're doing and start worrying about how happy they are. We begin to focus on them first. We learn to rejoice with them instead of competing with them. Want to know if you struggle with envy? What happens when your best friend gets a promotion? Best friend gets a new car? Best friend goes on a vacation? Are you happy for them? Now, I'm not talking about when you first hear it and you go, Yay, that's good. I'm talking about later, when you're driving home after they told you. Are you really saying, I'm so glad they got to do that. I'm so happy for them. That's an envy issue. It's a heart problem. We need to learn to accept people the way they are and not as we would like them to be. Now, I'm just going to throw that out there, but I want you, I've got a whole sermon series on this being the number one destructor of relationships. Unrealistic expectation. One of our problems with being content in our marriage, content in our relationship, is we have unrealistic expectations on those we love. We have expectations that come from our mothers and our grandmothers and the way so-and-so's husband or wife acts, and we project those on our spouses. Let me just give you an example. And this isn't even part of the sermon. This is extra, part of another sermon. But I think somebody needs to hear it. When you were growing up, your mom, when you got home, always had the kitchen cleaning and dinner in the oven. So you naturally project that on your spouse. That may have been acceptable in 1975 or 1955 or even 1985, but it's not realistic today. Most families are two working families with kids going every which way but loose. 
But instead of changing our expectation, we still have that expectation. And so you've had a stressful and horrible day at work and things have been piling on. And so you'll walk in the door and the sink is full of dishes and there's nothing to eat. And your wife is passed out in the recliner because she had a tough day too. And instead of saying, wow, let me go order something, you think, where's meal? This kitchen's a mess. You may not say it the first time or the second time, but the third or fourth time you will. Because what's happened is you've created an unreal expectation on your relationship. And you'll never be content until you let people be who they are. Doesn't mean we don't change and adapt and grow. But it means you need to learn to love them the way that they are. That's humility. Humility is the greatest weapon to fight envy. The second weapon is generosity. Learning to give away the things that you got. You know how hard that is? To give away the things that you got. That didn't come natural. You don't believe me? Go back to your children. Your children change in age. You go in and say, listen, we're going to clean. We're going to take all of this stuff and we're going to go give it to Goodwill. Or we're going to go give it to these children. And So you go and you pack a big pile and you leave the room and you come back and they have taken all of these things and moved it back over here. And don't look at me spiritual, husbands and wives. You do the same thing. Your husband looks at you and says, look, we got a basement full of boxes. We're throwing it all away. And you say, well, let me go through it first. You know what that means? We're not throwing anything away. Right? When you start learning to give your stuff away, you know what happens? It loses control over you. Because we think the stuff that we have, we control. We don't. It controls us. And the more you give it away, the less you care about having things. The more power is broken over you and what it controls in you. So learn to be generous. You know who the happiest people I know are? The people that are always giving stuff away. I couldn't grasp it. It always blew me away. Very first church I served in, I had this little old man in church, and he was living on a fixed income. I know probably only Social Security, but he was the sweetest old man, and he would come up after church every so often, and he would shake my hand, and I was just a poor youth minister. I think I made $300 a week or something and had a wife, and we were trying to make a living, and he walked, and he would always take, and he would palm my hand, and he'd put a $100 bill in there. And I'd say, I can't take that. You can't. Because in my mind, I'm saying, you can't afford that. You can't even afford to go eat. You can't afford to give me a $100 bill. And I'd argue with him, no, you take it. Don't, you can't give me this. And he'd look at me and say, it's not mine, it's God's. And if you don't take it, you're robbing me of the blessing of what I want to give to God. That was a hard lesson for me to receive. But you know what about that guy? He was the happiest guy in the church. Because he had recognized that things don't control him. That if he gave a hundred away, God was going to provide somehow. Because it was all about trusting God. Humility, generosity. Third, learn to count your blessings. Think of all the things that we've been blessed with that we don't recognize. I remember reading a story on the news of the, one of those people that had an autoimmune disease where they were in a bubble. They couldn't come out of the bubble. 
And he was getting a, a somehow getting an infusion that was going to give him some immunity where he could begin to go out of the bubble. All of his life, from the time he was born, he had never touched somebody skin on skin. And they asked him, they said, what's the first thing, the most important thing that you want to do when you get out of this? He said, I want to walk barefoot in the grass and I want to touch my mother's face. And we think all of those other things are so important. You've got so many blessings, so many things that God has given you that we take for granted. The last thing, learn to set things the way they are and not like the way you want them to be. One of the greatest games we like to play in America is when and then. You know what I mean? When I get a raise, then I'll be happy. When I'm in a better relationship, then everything is going to happen. And instead of living in the now, we're always living in the then. If you're always living in the then, you'll never be content now. But if you're content now, guess what happens? The then gets here a lot quicker than you ever imagined. Learn to be content with where you are. Learn to be content in the present Paul is trying to teach us this morning. Good times, bad times, rich or poor, popular or unpopular, free or in jail, sick or healthy. Learn to be completely happy and satisfied for the only reason being God loves you and He's your God. Paul said that's enough. Because real contentment's not having your needs met or dependent on your circumstances or how much stuff you have or don't have. Real need is recognizing that the creator of the universe loves you and takes care of you, and he always will. There was a group of sixth grade history students, geography students. They were studying the wonders of the world. Teacher asked them, I want you to think about the seven wonders of the ancient world, and then I want you to think about what are the seven greatest wonders today? They all began to write things down, and they all had different kinds of lists, but they compiled a list of seven wonders that they thought in the modern world were the greatest wonders of today. Number one was the Pyramids of Egypt. Number two, the Taj Mahal. Three, the Grand Canyon. Four, the Panama Canal. Five, the Empire State Building. Six, St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican. And seven, the Great Wall of China. Now, those are all incredible wonders. And as the teacher was taking up the papers, she noticed one of the little girls didn't turn her paper in. And she looked at her and asked her, did you not come up with a list? And the little girl hesitated and she said, I tried, but it was so hard because there's so many things to list. And the teacher said, well, why don't you tell me what you have and maybe I can help you. And so the girl hesitantly began to read her list and she had number one. These are the seven wonders of the world to touch, to taste, to see, to hear to hope, to laugh, and to love. teacher didn't know how to respond. Because you see, it's so easy for us to look at all the things that we create and think of them as wonders and take for granted all of the things that God has given us and miss it and miss it. This Thanksgiving, all of those things that we consider ordinary that are in reality miraculous. Why don't you offer thanks? We in this room are surrounded by miracles. 
just the breath that you take is miraculous. When we learn to be content with who we are in Christ, we can't help but be overwhelmed with thanksgiving. I believe if we can hold on to that secret that Paul was giving us, thanksgiving becomes more than a holiday. It becomes a lifestyle. Let's pray.